So far, we have learned that immune diseases are the result of normal immune responses gone rogue, that there are different kinds of immune responses, and that those immune mistakes stem from broken barriers or dysbiotic microbiomes. That leaves us with a few options for treating immune diseases. We can, one, try to squelch the immune response, two, retrain the immune system to stop acting out, or three, try to fix the barriers and the microbiome. I spoke to Dr. Brian Schroer, Director of Allergy and Immunology at Akron Children's Hospital, over multiple days to help me understand what treatments we have today. He helped me see that we are closer to truly curing immune diseases than you might actually realize. I had him walk me through our options from the top, starting with drugs that mitigate and mask symptoms. Here's him explaining how antihistamines work. Antihistamines are a medication that work by blocking the action of histamine in a way that it really affects things after an allergic reaction occurs. So let's say you have dog allergy and you go around a dog, the dog allergen, the protein goes into their no your nose and will cause the mast cell to release histamine and then cause sneezing, itching, dripping, along with a bunch of other chemicals that cause other problems. When you have dog allergies, you would take antihistamines to try and block the effect of histamine once it's already released. So by blocking the effect of histamine, in this case, using medicines like loratadine or cetirizine, which is generic Claritin or Zyrtec, then what you're doing is blocking the itching and sneezing that occur when you go around dogs. The typical antihistamine most people have heard about, of course, is diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. That lasts for about six hours inside your body so that you need to take it every six hours for it to last all day. The newer generation antihistamines we just mentioned, these are 24-hour acting antihistamines. You take them once a day, and therefore the medicine stays in your body for at least one full day. As Dr. Schroer said, antihistamines are treating an allergic reaction that's already happening. They smother the histamine that causes the symptoms. He went on to explain that one step better is to actually prevent the histamine release from happening in the first place, and that's where steroids may come in. Epinephrine, or the EpiPen, is one of those steroids that you have probably heard of because it saves lives during allergic reactions by shutting them down quickly. So epinephrine is a medicine that's been around forever. It's a hormone that our body makes on its own. But in this case, we're using injectable forms of it outside our body to up the dose quickly. And the, the exact mechanisms of how epinephrine works for allergic reactions isn't fully known, but there are some general mechanisms that are known. One is, we talked about those mast cells that are the major cells that release chemicals like histamine and other chemicals that cause the symptoms of an allergic reaction, whether it's due to dogs or due to foods. The epinephrine is well known to stabilize the mast cells, meaning it prevents the allergic reaction from allowing the mast cell to release the mediators that they've already made. It also does, like, like steroids, it also prevents the production of more mediators so it works all over the body. It gets into your body very quickly by doing it through a muscle. And that's generally what is mostly thought to be the mechanism of how epinephrine works for anaphylaxis. Something that gets drilled into anyone with a food allergy is anytime you use your EpiPen, you have to go to the ER. I always thought that the reason for going to the ER is to get more longer lasting steroids. Turns out this isn't true. To be clear, you should still go to the ER so that they can monitor you. But if one dose of epinephrine was enough and the reaction is subsiding, you probably don't need more steroids. Here's why. People have historically used oral or other 
uh, intravenous or intramuscular versions of systemic steroids, which is usually prednisone. And they use it because they think that it decreases the production of immune uh, mediators like histamine and other trions. The situation when it comes to food allergies, though, is that there's really never been any evidence that once you get a dose of prednisone after you have a food allergic reaction, that it actually changes anything in response in regards to what kind of allergic reaction you will have. And here's the reason. Prednisone and other steroids, they work by blocking production of these mediators. So it takes at least four hours for these medicines to do anything. So let's give an example. If you have a food allergic reaction, you go to the ER and one hour after the allergic reaction, you get a dose of prednisone. Then it's not going to even have any effect until five, four hours later. That means five hours of, after an allergic reaction to, due to food, that's when the medicine kicks in. Well, most people who've ever had an allergic reaction to food will know that most reactions are totally gone within one or two hours, such that the use of oral or other um, intramuscular or IV steroids really has no real evidence of benefit when treating a food allergic reaction. But we take inhaled steroids when someone's having an asthma attack too, and that's also prednisone. So is that working very differently than in the case of an asthma attack? Yeah, of course, for asthma attacks, we use oral steroids for asthma attacks or asthma exacerbations. And when you think about asthma, that's an immune response that is chronic. Most people with asthma are having symptoms on a frequent basis leading into a bad asthma attack. And when we use oral steroids during a bad asthma attack, they do work because the inflammation is there for days on end. And by using multiple days of oral steroids, it really can decrease the symptoms of an asthma attack for you know, coughing, wheezing, chest tightness. And it works because it does decrease all the different inflammatory causes of the asthma attack itself. The inhaled steroids that are often used to prevent asthma attacks, these are the controller medicines like fluticasone, which is Flovant, or Symbicort, which is budesonide. These low-dose inhaled steroids are essentially topically applied deep into the lungs, and they decrease the chronic inflammation so that hopefully you decrease the frequency of the symptoms you're having and can prevent uh, an asthma attack from occurring because it prevents the buildup of that inflammation. So the two different types of steroids we use are the oral steroids for bad asthma exacerbation. The main treatment for most asthma is using a low dose daily preventative dose of inhaled steroids so you can hopefully not end up on the oral steroids. But it, the, the key point there is that the inflammation from asthma is a chronic inflammation. Dr. Shore just explained why steroids are useful in asthma. Steroids are also useful in eczema and some other immune diseases. Here's why. Actually, most patients with allergies have multiple different uh, diseases where we can use topically applied steroids to decrease that chronic inflammation. So for example, if you have a dog allergy and you have a dog at home, then using intranasal in the nose, topically applied nose sprays that are steroids are, are the best medicine for nose allergy symptoms. If you have eczema, then you have topically applied steroids that you put on your skin to treat atopic dermatitis or eczema. If you have eosinophilic esophagitis, then you have inflammation in the esophagus that's chronic, and we can use topically applied, in this case, swallowed steroids to help decrease that inflammation and therefore prevent or decrease the symptoms of all those different diseases. So in diseases where inflammation is continuing beyond the exposure to the trigger, steroids can be useful. Steroids can also help when you can directly apply them to the tissue that is inflamed. One thing I want to point out to you 
that Dr. Schro and I didn't discuss, but is important to note, is that systemic steroids, and I'm not talking about the topical ones, but the systemic ones, have a lot of side effects and can't be used forever. Medline lists the effects of prednisone as headache, dizziness, difficulty falling asleep, inappropriate happiness, extreme changes in mood, and changes in personality. Steroids are effective, but you don't want to take them forever. That's why there's been a lot of excitement about a new class of drugs called biologics. I asked Dr. Schroer to explain how biologics are different and maybe better than steroids. When we think about these anti-inflammatory medicines that we've been talking about, I hate to use military analogies, but this is usually uh, what I do in clinic. When I think about oral steroids, I tell people those are like the nuclear weapon for inflammation. It goes all over. It really works well to decrease inflammation. It has a lot of potential for side effects when used orally because it's a high dose and it just wipes out inflammation all over the body. The topically applied steroids that we just talked about for say nose allergies or eczema or EOE are kind of like, in this case, small bombs. They work where you want them to go. They don't cause too many uh, side effects if used in the right place at the right dose. And they work really well, but they target a bunch of different types of inflammation. Then when you think about biologic therapies, these are basically antibodies that are engineered. And I think about these, these biologics as kind of snipers, where the, the anti-inflammatory effect of it takes out one small path of the infl inflammation and can therefore be very targeted without having to cause any other potential side effects, or at least to at least minimize the potential for other side effects. Biologics target immune cells on a single pathway, Th2, for example, that's acting up. You may recall that allergic eczema, asthma, and food allergy are all kind of the same disease because they all use the same Th2 pathway. So a single biologic against the Th2 pathway can work on a number of diseases at once. When it comes to allergies, the most common antibodies that have been used, and one of which is omelitzumab, the brand name is Zolaire. That drug has been around since the early 2000s. It is FDA approved to treat allergic asthma and, and nose allergies in terms of nasal polyps. It isn't uh, FDA approved to treat eczema and it's being studied currently to uh, evaluate and treat allergic reactions for anaphylaxis because it does target the cause of anaphylaxis, which is the allergic antibody. The other drug is dupilumab, which is a newer uh, antibody has been around for five to six years, and it is FDA approved to treat atopic dermatitis or eczema, asthma, particularly eosinophilic asthma. It's also FDA approved to treat nasal polyps, and it's being studied like Zolaire for use in food allergies and, and eosinophilic stomach disorders like EOE or EGID. While FDA approval is needed for each disease, this is huge for patients. It is a real fix for the whole dysfunctioning part of the immune system without many side effects. In fact, biologics can almost feel like a cure. When it comes to omelitzumab, it's given every two weeks or up to every four weeks, and it really works while you're on it. There is some initial studies that suggest it's possible that if you stay on Zolaire or omelitzumab for a number of years, you might actually change the course of the allergic asthma disease. So it could be maybe a disease modifying therapy, but that particular idea has not been fully studied, so it's not really clear. So right now, if I, if I have somebody who's going on omelitzumab, the thought is you're probably going to need it either lifelong or until 
something else changes the disease, and that once we stop the omelitzumab, it's probable that it will come back, the disease will come back. And that's the same for dupilumab. But if you stay on the treatment, let's say you just take it for the rest of your life, are you basically effectively like someone without asthma? For the most part, if those drugs work for you, then it is able to significantly improve people's quality of life, decrease asthma exacerbations, decrease ER visits and hospitalizations. Though most patients continue to have some symptoms, they're just significantly decreased or improved from what they were before they started the medication. And in that sense, they are, for some patients, almost like miracles. In other patients, they don't work at all, though they do tend to work for asthma in almost all the patients to some degree. It's just a matter of, I can't predict before I start it, who's going to be responsive as well as uh, we would hope, of course. So it usually works in most patients. It's just a matter of degree. Some patients, it is as though they don't have the disease at all. With these drugs, is there any risk that your body could get like angry and that you'd end up having to take more and more of it over time? Uh, so that's a question a lot of people ask about most drugs. Albuterol, which is used for asthma, is actually a medicine that where the more you use it, the less your body responds to it. And in that case, if you are using albuterol frequently, then you need, instead of two puffs that might work, you might need four puffs for it to work the same. When it comes to the biologics, the, you know, these are chronic drugs. And as, as far as we know, they actually go the opposite direction, meaning the more you use it, the less your body produces these cells because they're the inflammation itself is being kind of decreased. So there is no real evidence that there's that loss of efficacy the more you use it or the longer you use it, at least as far as we know right now. Biologics are a major advancement against immune disease and can be huge for people who were miserable before. I do want to point out one issue with biologics, though. They are effective because they stop a part of your immune system from both dysfunctioning, but also from functioning at all. When it comes to allergic diseases on the Th2 pathway, knocking out the immune cells isn't a big deal. You may recall that the Th2 pathway primarily exists to fight parasites. In the United States, we don't get a lot of parasites, so losing your ability to fight parasites isn't particularly scary. But what about people with autoimmune disease on the Th1 or Th17 pathway? Those pathways help you fight viruses and bacteria. We've had biologics that knock out that pathway for a long time, and while they do work really well, they can leave a person immunocompromised against flus, colds, and COVID-19. What we really want is a true cure, a way to undo the immune dysfunction. One treatment that is a hot topic right now is called oral immunotherapy to fix a food allergy. Basically, it's where we take something that at a low dose is very safe and give it to you frequently. And by giving it to you frequently, and increasing the dose slowly, you will not have as frequent uh, severe life-threatening reactions if you eat it accidentally. If you're asking me next to say, okay, how does that work within our bodies? The honest answer is nobody fully knows, but we have ideas about it. And the idea is that your immune system is overreacting to milk or peanut or egg. And by giving it to you slowly, your immune system does change so that it goes from an immune system that overreacts when you get exposed to, to peanut to one that more likely is, is able to ignore that you just ate a bunch of peanut. The oral immunotherapy can actually decrease the production of allergic antibodies and increase the production of more protective antibodies and increase the production of cells 
that help decrease the immune system's response to peanut or egg or milk. You really, we can see those changes. In patients who do oral immunotherapy, you can see the IgE to peanut go down after a year. You can see the increase of IgG to peanut go up while you're on immunotherapy. We can see the cells that react to peanut go down and we can see the cells that decrease your reaction rates to peanut go up while you're on immunotherapy. So think about it just overall. The clearer benefit that almost everybody who goes through oral immunotherapy can achieve, whether it's with peanut, egg, or milk, is that most patients are able to achieve a protective effect whereby if they accidentally eat a certain amount of their, their food allergen, they will have less risk for having a more severe allergic reaction. According to the data we have, oral immunotherapy really does rewire a person's immune system so that they do not react to or are much less likely to react to foods. But there is, and you'll excuse the pun, no free lunch when it comes to the immune system. Here's what oral immunotherapy actually looks like. An initial day escalation where you come in and get five doses or maybe more, depending on which protocol we're using, for a full four hours of a, essentially a food challenge. Then you have to come back in every two weeks where we increase the dose and then you watch you for an hour. And then you got to stay on that same dose every day for two weeks and then come back. And, you know, if everybody went straight through the FDA approved product, that would be 15 two-week visits. But nobody goes straight through. And then the therapy after you get to the top dose, after whatever number of doses it takes to get up to the top maintenance dose, then you're going to be seen every six months. And then once you're on that stable therapy, maybe every year for three to five years, and then maybe at three to five years, we can talk about sustained unresponsiveness. So that's what it takes to retrain the immune system. When Dr. Rothenberg said the immune system has memory, maybe he should have said that it never forgets. Beyond just this steady work, immunotherapy comes with real risks. So if somebody is doing oral immunotherapy to any food, they really have to know what they're getting into. They have to know that this is a therapy that it, um, has the benefit of decreasing any accidental exposures causing reactions, but we also have to weigh those benefits with the risks. So when you think about the risks, one is the risk of increased rates of anaphylaxis from the actual therapy. So if you're coming in and eating the food allergen, you might actually have more episodes of anaphylaxis to the actual therapy than you would if you just keep, kept avoiding it. The other medical side effect is stomach allergies. Essentially, the reason most people end up stopping the immunotherapy uh, from a medical standpoint is actually stomach allergy symptoms, nausea, vomiting, stomach pain after the dose uh, on a daily basis because you're dosing every day. I don't want to give you the impression that immunotherapy is a bad idea. Allergy shots that people get to reduce their pollen allergy symptoms are also a form of immunotherapy, and millions of people get them. I personally know dozens of people who have gone through our oral immunotherapy and are incredibly thankful. My son, unfortunately, was one of the unlucky ones who developed the side effects of horrible GI pain, and we had to stop. That was frustrating for me, of course for him, but also for the doctors who were trying really hard to battle his immune system. Doctors are now looking to understand if they can make oral immunotherapy even more successful. Biologics are being studied along with the immunotherapy to achieve better results. What people have uh, started to study is whether you can use omelitzumab, which decreases anaphylaxis as a way of preventing one of the two big side effects of oral immunotherapy, which is anaphylaxis to the actual therapy. So that's what it's being used for. 
Uh, the studies have been come out and, and showed some evidence of benefit for that. You know, when we think about most medications, you know, people don't want to use another medicine to treat the side effect of another medicine, but that's essentially what, what's happening when it comes to omelazumab. Okay, so I see what you're saying. So if you were on a chemotherapy and you have the side effect of nausea, this is like a nausea drug and it knocks out the nausea so that you actually tolerate the chemotherapy better, but it's not actually making the chemotherapy more effective. You know, it might, if you're able to get a higher dose of chemotherapy than you would have without the anti-nausea medicine. So in that case, if you're on OIT right. and you can't get above a certain level of the, of the food, so if you are increasing the dose, you get to a certain point and you keep having reactions, the goal is to use the omelizumab so you can go beyond that dose that's kind of you're stuck at and get to a higher dose with therefore more efficacy because of it. But yeah, essentially it's allowing you to prevent the side effects of the therapy and get to a higher dose because you're having less side effects. So far, we've heard about treatments that reduce symptoms, treatments that knock out the immune system's ability to have the symptoms, and even a therapy that can retrain the immune system. But as we learn from interview after interview, there's a growing consensus that the reason immune diseases are on the rise in the first place is a change to people's barriers and people's microbiomes. On the topic of barriers, immunologist Benjamin Wright from the Mayo Clinic said to me that we're still in search of that holy grail. His team is working with other doctors around the world to see if drugs we already have today, such as a drug for emphysema, can actually remodel the cells of the esophagus barrier, thus repairing the lining and quelching the allergic disease that is EOE. And because some EOE is triggered by oral immunotherapy, he and his colleagues are sampling the esophagus cells of people going through it to try and see barrier dysfunctioning happening in real time. If they can see it and find the biomarkers of it, they may be able to understand how to reverse it. Along the same lines, Dr. Benninger, who we met in the microbiome episode, is working with his colleagues to find ways to reset damaged microbiomes and repair the underlying causes of many immune diseases. We can affect the microbiome in real people in, in ways that are interventional. For example, we can feed them different foods and that changes their microbiome, maybe not as much as we would like, but we can induce shifts by, by changing their diet. We have also recently done a study where we completely eliminated people's microbiomes for a very short period of time and took measurements as it reconstituted itself. The study is called the FARM study, and it stands for Food and Resulting Microbial Metabolites. The design of the experiment was to feed people three different diets, vegetarian, omnivore, or enteral nutrition, basically where people are only drinking a shake. And then after 10 days, they get a cocktail of three antibiotics, and then after two days of that antibiotic cocktail, they get basically a colonoscopy procedure, which washes out their gut. And we found from taking measurements that this basically eliminated all the bacteria that were there in these people's lower gut. The antibiotics kill bacteria and the washout gets rid of all the dead bacteria and whoever was left alive for some reason. And so these people in the study really were starting from scratch the day after their washout. They remained on their same diets. So we had one group starting from nothing eating meat, one group starting from nothing eating only vegetables, and another group only drinking shakes. 
And under these circumstances, the impact of the diet is enormous. And we were able to do an experiment intervening in people's lives. And here we actually acquired that catalog. We know which molecules are made by only the microbiome. We know which molecules are coming in and going with diet. And we know which molecules are, are staying around because people can make them. And we know how bacteria reconstitute themselves in adults based on what you're eating. So all of this is amazing. We wouldn't have been able to do it strictly from an observational study. This is cutting edge research. The team at the University of Pennsylvania now has a catalog to understand which specific molecules bacteria provide, as well as how a gut rebuilds itself after a major course of antibiotics. I think our thought is to move that more into people with diseases. So people with small bowel, bacterial overgrowth, people with other diseases of the gut, can we introduce antibiotics to kind of like take a dysbiotic microbiome and get it back on track? Now we kind of know if we do antibiotics plus a certain diet, we can kind of push things in a certain direction. Okay, can we use that to intervene in disease now? We are doing a, a study where one group of people will receive basically highly processed foods and another group will receive less processed versions of those same foods. And so we will get uh, a look into how the, the processing and, and preservatives, high salt and fat that comes along with that impacts the people's microbiomes over the study period. Dr. Bittinger's team is doing the research to show what needs to change in a dysbiotic microbiome and how we might be able to do it in a reproducible way. In the meantime, functional medicine practitioners are saying, we actually have the ability to intervene right now. So for example, a kid, let's say, gets a label of ADHD and anxiety, plus is having a lot of oppositional behavior. What I think we need to be doing is to ask why. So why is this child being given a label with ADHD or why is this child anxious? And what are the underlying factors that could be causing the child to behave in an oppositional manner? And so the answer is that I can have 10 kids with similar diagnoses, all of whom got to that diagnosis very differently. So what do I mean by that? I can have a kid with an ADHD diagnosis and actually has undiagnosed celiac disease. And that kid's celiac is being manifest primarily with inattention or hyperactivity or anxiety or, or all three. The second kid with an ADHD diagnosis has mold in the home and the parents don't know. And the kid's digestive tract has been colonized with mold. The molds are producing volatile organic compounds that are affecting this kid's brain and the kid can't concentrate. Another kid with ADHD might actually have a ton of histamine in his or her system. Having a lot of histamine makes you angry and irritable. I didn't go through 10 examples, but I could. So, so the label to me isn't the end of the story because I don't want to primarily provide a prescription to these kids. I want to really lift up the hood and figure out what's going on metabolically, in the gut, in the kid's home environment. I'm tasked with asking why. I really think that's 
that's a fundamental difference is, is, is really asking why and trying to get at the why of what's going on. Dr. Getzelman's point is that when we look at an immune disease, we can't stop at the malfunctioning system. We must look for the cause of that malfunction. She laid out some common ones we've discussed, like mold, dysbiosis, and underlying food allergy. While her principle is sound, and personally, I have had a lot of success working similarly with a naturopathic physician, immune treatments should be pushed to the forefront and studied rigorously so that we can, as she said, lift up the hood and then ideally use a well-studied and FDA-approved treatment like the ones mentioned here and in previous episodes. As we continue to understand the immune system better and better and continue to invest in the necessary research and development in clinical studies to find treatments and cures, the world for people suffering with immune diseases will look very different 20 years from now than it does today. And for me, that fills me with a lot of hope for my kid. Though he's sick today, he may not be when he's an adult. We already have many effective treatments that can possibly get him to a place where he feels no different than a person without an immune disease. But at the same time, it feels great to be hopeful about an even better tomorrow. If you've gleaned anything about me from this podcast, it's perhaps that I don't really want to wait 20 years for a better tomorrow. I want us to start building it today. Because here's the thing. If we know all this stuff about the immune system, how it learns, how it becomes dysfunctional, and the different systems that are part of the chain, couldn't we prevent immune disease from happening in the first place? Shouldn't we? That's next time on Fixing Sick. Fixing Sick was written and produced by me, Mina Lele. Audio engineering by Chris Whitmore. The opinions I state in this podcast are my own. My guests only said what they said, and any mistakes are totally my own.